The following sermon was preached during a Sunday morning reunion at Harvest City. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, first off, saying uh, thank you to everyone for canceling your spring break plans so that you can be here for spring us. It makes us feel really good about ourselves. Just kidding, we know that we're not that cool, and then none of you actually did that, but we're still thankful that you're here with us. Um, so before we get uh, into the text that Katie just read, I um, want to take us into a little bit of American literature. So hope you guys will enjoy that. Uh, so talking about the 1960s novel, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, by Harper Lee, and it's an American classic. It was written and published around, uh, just before the peak of the American Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Lee writes a fictional story touching on many of the themes and issues she saw in society at that time. The story is set in the Great Depression era of the mid-1930s in this fictional town of Maycomb, Alabama. The culture of Maycomb reflected that of many small towns in the formerly Confederate southern U.S. states in towns at that time, a culture of hostility against black Americans who used to be their slaves until the Civil War, then after that, the Union won, President Lincoln declared the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the slaves would be free. This hostility and inability to accept black people as equal in dignity and value to whites led to the formation of Jim Crow laws, which systemically propagated racial inequality through mandated segregation of black people from whites in public spaces and in tra public transportation. And so this is kind of the context in which this, this novel, To Killing Mockingbird, uh, takes place in this fictional town, which is kind of this an embodiment of, of that type of culture. Spoiler alert here, if you have not read this book, it's amazing, you should do it, but I'm going to give away some, like, the biggest things, so either, like, maybe just step out for, like, two minutes, or just, like, uh, like plug your ears. So the story revolves around the criminal allegations made against a black citizen of Maycomb, Tom Robinson, and the white lawyer who defends him, whose name is Atticus Finch. Robinson was accused of sexually assaulting a white woman, Mayela Ewell. Mayella and her father, Bob Ewell, accused Robinson of this when they took him to court. Atticus Finch, knowing that defending Robinson in the racist crime <coughs> would be an uphill battle, and that doing so, many people in town would dislike him. But Finch was a good and upright and a daring man who was motivated primarily by doing what was right. So he agreed to defend Robinson in court. During the trial, the Ewells pointed to the marks and bruises on Mayella's body as evidence that she was raped by Robinson. However, Finch presented striking evidence that Mayella was, in fact, beaten by her father, who was disgusted that she would go out with a black man. However, despite much evidence pointing towards Robinson's innocence, the prejudiced jury sided with the Ewells, and Robinson was found guilty, and he Such a sad and such an angering thing. Justice was clearly subverted for this black man who did nothing wrong. 
In today's text from the Bible, I'll preach upon, we'll see in a story, and a true story at that, one where an innocent person was put on trial by people who, from the evil in their hearts, falsely accused this person of doing things that he had not done. My sermon today is the first of a series during this Lent season. We'll culminate on Easter Sunday in four weeks. So before I jump into today's uh, text, which Haiti read, um, I'll give you the historical context of, of important things that were happening around that time. The context I'll, I'll be sharing focused on what happened earlier in Matthew chapter 26. So Jesus was uh, a perfect and, and truly, uh, and, and spoke the, the full truth in his thoughts, uh, words, and his, his deeds. But his claims that he was the Son of God the Messiah, and that he could forgive sins and offer salvation, caused the Jewish leaders to hate him because he believed, or they believed, that he was a liar and a blasphemer, or someone who spoke offensively or sacrilegiously against God. Because of these things, the chief priests who were the, and the elders who were the Jewish leaders at that time, they plotted to quietly arrest Jesus and to kill him. Jesus knew his time on earth was coming to an end, so he called his, his, his disciples, his closest companions, and students together for a meal that is now known as the Last Supper. Here at this Last Supper, uh, the institution of what we, we um, just recognized this morning in, in communion was established. He told the disciples to eat bread in remembrance of his body, which was going to be broken for them, and also to drink wine in remembrance of the blood that he was going to shed for them for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, uh, after this, went into a garden for a time of prayer, called uh, this garden called Gethsemane. Here he asked God the Father to remove the cup of wrath from him, referring to the punishment of sin and separation from the Father he was going to have to take for the sins of the world. But despite this, he demonstrated perseverance and trust in the Father and said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. During the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. After Jesus prays in Gethsemane, this is fulfilled. The apostle Judas took a bribe of money from the chief priests and led them to Jesus in the garden where they held their swords to him and arrested him. And that's where our text picks up today. My sermon title is called Jesus on Trial. And my big idea for the sermon is this. Uh, because we are guilty, but Jesus is innocent, we must follow his example by speaking the truth and allow him to be our merciful judge. And I'll flesh out this big idea through three lessons today. But before we jump into those, uh, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you uh, for your word, for its truthfulness, for its goodness, and how it points us to you, our merciful judge, um, and sacrificial judge, Lord, would you use my words today to glorify you and to be uh, building up of this body that they would love you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. So the first lesson is this. Some people cannot accept the truth, leading them to do great evil. So starting at the beginning of our passage in verse 57, it says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him in a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. 
and going inside with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So notice what the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, were doing. They were trying to get Jesus killed, but they feared doing it themselves, because Jesus had a large following of people who loved him and trusted him. So they worried that Jesus' followers would find out that they killed him, and they would seek revenge against them, and they would revolt and it would cause chaos. So instead, to get him killed, they needed support from their top religious leader, as well as legal justification from Rome, who ruled over Jerusalem at that time. So for the former, the chief priests bring Jesus in front of Caiaphas, the high priest, or kind of the religious top dog at that time. And how do they make their case that Jesus should be killed? Through lies. They were seeking false testimony, the text says. However, the people the Jewish leaders hired must have been fools or bad actors of that, because it seems it says that many uh, false witnesses came forward before any con uh, convincing evidence came, but eventually some did come. So the, the text continues in verse 60, and it says, At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And it was true. Finally, we have some witnesses who come and say something that Jesus actually said. However, many people had wrong ideas about what Jesus meant when he said this, thinking that he was planning to lead an insurrection by physically tearing down God's temple in Jerusalem brick by brick before he would proceed to physically build it back up in a weekend's time. However, in John chapter 2, we learn that Jesus was not talking about destroying the physical temple of God, but the physical temple of his body, the place where scripture says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So after claiming this, it made it seem like Jesus was planning an insurrection. He must have paused for a little while while the high priest was waiting for an answer. And it seemed that this really tested the high priest's patience. Thinking back up at verse 62, it says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that this, these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. So Jesus' response clearly takes off the high priest so much that he tears up his own shirt. Have you ever been that angry in your life? Seems kind of funny uh, for us since people don't usually express anger in that way in today's society and be particularly problematic for women. Um, but this high priest was so enraged with Jesus' response, uh, you have said so, because Jesus affirms the claim that he is the Son of God. 
Also through his response, Jesus affirms himself as the son of man. Regarding this phrase, one commentary says this, Jesus is not merely a, a, a son of man, an ordinary human male being, but he repeated over 80 times in the Gospels that he calls himself <coughs> the son of man, which suggests that he is the greatest, most notable son of man of all time. The son of man is a messianic title that refers back to the mysterious human divine figure that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel was a prophet of God who commonly had visions and interpreted dreams. And in Daniel chapter 7, he describes one of his dreams. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of God. <coughs> and he came to the Ancient of Days, referring to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the high priests and chief priests were well studied in the Old Testament, so it was no surprise for them. But in what Jesus said, he makes it crystal clear that Jesus knowingly claimed to be the chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of God. What's also clear, though, is that Caiaphas could not accept this truth that Jesus was the Messiah that he claimed to be. Thus, he responded with rage, tearing his clothes, charging Jesus guilty, and demanding that he be put to death. After this, they continued to do evil towards the innocent Jesus. Picking up in verse 67, it says, Then they spit in his face, and they struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophecy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Though Jesus only spoke truth about himself, he was subject to physical abuse by the Jewish leaders, and even more, he was mocked. But in an effort to kill Jesus, even this was not the end of their evil plot to get rid of him. With the high priest's affirmation of Jesus' guilt, they now had justification by the Mosaic Law, or God's Law, to kill Jesus for blaspheming. But again, they weren't going to do it because they feared revolt. So they needed someone else to kill him. And this someone else they hoped was Rome, who could sentence Jesus to death on, by their own law, if only they could provide convincing enough evidence of his guilt. Possibly if they could get him to say that he was king, which would come as a threat to the authority of Caesar, the Roman emperor. So the next morning they bound Jesus, the text says, and placed him before the highest Roman authority in the area, which was Governor Pontius Pilate. And we see their interaction in chapter 27, starting at verse 11. It says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Notice that in response to all these accusations against him, Jesus did not say a word. He makes no effort to defend himself. And the response, the text says, uh, is the governor said he's greatly amazed. 
And understandably so. Why would a person whose life was on the line not make any defense to say that? The text continues in verse 15. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release a crowd for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want uh, me to release for you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife, the wife of Pilate, sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to him, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified! And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified! Let him be crucified! Crucify him! Fortunately for the chief priests, the burden of crafting false evidence against Jesus in order to kill him was lifted from them as they maliciously plotted to challenge the integrity of the Roman governor by persuading the crowd to verbally bombard him and see if he would cave. And to their delight, Pilate was the coward that they hoped he would be. Even though both Pilate and his wife knew Jesus was innocent, the pressure of the angry crowd caused Pilate to subvert legal justice. And he allowed for Jesus to be taken away and crucified, while Barabbas, the notorious thief and insurrectionist, was free. So the chief priest committed much evil against an innocent man. Slander conspiracy, assault, because they rejected the truth that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of God. So even though Jesus was blameless, he was rejected and persecuted for speaking the truth. Likewise, followers of Jesus can expect the same. John, in John 15, Jesus tells his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus shares with his disciples this not only as a message to them, but to all his disciples who would come after them, even you who follow Christ in this room today. However, rejection and persecution in the U.S. today tend to look a little bit different than it did back in the first century where imprisonments and beatings and capital punishment were a much more probable consequence of having a public faith. More probable ways Christians can expect to be rejected for speaking biblical truth today is when we counsel others about the existence of objective moral truth, especially as it relates to sexual orientation and gay marriage. Before addressing these things, I feel the need to share some disclaimers. 
Much of the reason that non-Christians despise Christians today is not because they think Christians are cowards and aren't willing to defend what they believe. No, especially behind the protective barrier of the internet and the social media age that we live in, Christians seem to be more courageous than ever to share their beliefs with others. I'd argue this, though, that the primary way, uh, what, that primarily what makes non-Christians repulsed by Christians today is in the manner of which they share the truths of what they believe. Namely, with, with harshness and pride and a lack of respect, all in a tone of self-righteousness. But sadly, this is not what God has in mind when he calls us to speak the truth in love. Rather, the Apostle Peter tells us that to speak the truth in love is to lovingly speak truth with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. To speak truth with gentleness and respect likely means that in conversations with people who don't hold our, our beliefs, we do a lot more asking questions and listening than we do speaking. And that when we speak, our tone is soft and it's caring instead of aggressive, judgmental, and self-righteous like some of the street preachers on campus here at Iowa tend to do. So when God calls us to speak a hard truth to someone, we dishonor him if we do it in a way that's contrary to his word. And the chance that people reject the truth will be even greater. If people reject the truth of the gospel, we want to make sure that it's because the truth, because of the truth itself, which already by itself is offensive enough. So we want to make sure that it's not because we share things in a biblical way. Is that why the truth of God is rejected? I should also note that you need to be prayerful before speaking to people about these topics who hold contrasting opinions about them. To interject biblical truth in these conversations where it's not invited will likely result in the person you share with being more turned off to God and his church and trusting you and trusting the Bible less. <laughs> Additionally, when, in a, when an appropriate moment arises to speak, saying less is probably more. There's much the Bible has to say about things that are countercultural. But in these situations, saying too much will likely result in you being too preachy, and it will, will result in the person you're speaking to tuning you out. So, in these moments, we need to pray that the Spirit, in the moment, would give us the concise truth that the person in front of you needs to hear. And then after this, we would trust the Spirit to continue to do the work in their life, whether it's through you, or whether it's through someone else. But when the appropriate moment arises, it's important to be bold and to speak the truth, because if we don't, we leave people to be enslaved by their sinful desires, which if not repented of, puts them in a very dangerous spot spiritually. Even though it may seem like the more loving thing to do in conversations is to affirm people and to sympathize with them, the loving thing is to actually speak the hard truth. Regarding speaking the truth about the presence of objective moral truths, the spirit of the age today 
Is that objective moral truths? Huh. They don't exist. They're not even a thing. Rather, truth is whatever you feel is right. And following that truth will help you become the best, most empowered, and happy version of yourself. But God's word compels us to share the real truth that there is a God who created the world. And he tells us what thoughts and desires and actions are good or bad, righteous or sinful. And that there are severe eternal consequences if we do not repent by turning from objectively evil thoughts and actions to those that are objectively good and righteous. And that turning toward God actually results, even though it's hard to fathom, it actually results in our best, most happy lives. And that through that, we will give more glory to God in the process, which is a primary task that God gives all people. So this moral relativism in our culture has also shaped mainstream beliefs about sexual orientation and identity. The culture says that love is love, or essentially that there are no forms of love uh, between people that are immoral or wrong, but any feeling of romantic love or attraction I feel towards another human being must be good. And even more, it must be reflective of my sexual identity or who I am at my fundamental core. Therefore, if I'm a male and I'm attracted to another male, I must be a gay person. And therefore, it's right and fitting that I pursue gay relationships and marriage if I desire. But the truth is that the Bible lets us know that our feelings do not always emanate from right beliefs or reflect who we are at our fundamental core. Rather, Scripture says that we are prone to wander and to sin. Because of this, we always need to check our feelings against God's Word and affirm only the feelings that Scripture says are good and turn from those it says are sinful. Specifically, the truth of, of God's Word is that God has made romantic relationships and marriage to reflect his relationship between himself, the divine groom, and his bride, the church. Something that can't be reflected between people of the same sex as groom with groom or bride with bride. Additionally, the Bible lays out the moral code regarding sex, that the only way to pursue it is within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, which again reflects the relationship between Christ and his bride, the only other option the Bible says is celibacy or sexual abstinence. And while those who oppose will likely feel that this is unfair, so all you straight people get to have sex and committed relationships with people who you want and we don't? Are you kidding me? They feel that this is unfair, holding them back from the full life that they're also entitled to. But the reality is that even though it's hard and we can't understand it, it is right and it is fair. That we ought to trust God because he created sex. And we trust him by obeying his word regarding our sex lives because he knows what's best for us. And when we do, even though it's hard to imagine living our best life without sex, 
The reality is that joy and pleasure are not ultimately experienced during physical intimacy, but rather they are experienced inside the intimate acceptance, love, and security that we can find in the relationship with God. Therefore, if you're a Christian with, with more same-sex attraction than attraction towards people of the opposite sex, God might be calling you towards celibacy. Not saying that he is, he might be. And because God designed things that way, that means trusting in him and doing that will actually give you the most pleasurable and satisfying life that you can have, even if it's really hard to fathom. So it's right that we would gently, discerningly, and boldly speak the truth of God's word to others with different beliefs, when appropriate times uh, arise. But there is another sad reality that even if you do it, you leave a conversation with somebody and you feel like you did it in the most biblical and gracious and empathetic and soft and caring way, there are times when <coughs> you will be rejected. Why is this? It's because some people simply have hearts that have been so hardened by their sin that they cannot accept any truth outside of what they feel is true, and nothing that you can say will change that. For speaking the truth, we can expect others to call us hateful, judgmental, unloving, toxic, a friend that you've had for many years may give you the ultimatum that either you accept them as the gay person that they are, or else they can't have you in their life anymore. Experiencing these things will be hard. By no means it will be any fun. We will grieve these things, or at least we ought to. And these times will make us question ourselves. And they'll make us question is Christianity even true? This sucks. I don't want to go through this. Maybe it's just, maybe it's all a lie. So what then should we do when we experience this type, this type of rejection for speaking the truth? To stop sharing truth and give people what they want to hear so that they would feel good and they'd like us? By no means. Even though the consequences of speaking the truth will suck sometimes, God says that we are first to love Him above all others. Even more than our family members, even more than our dear friends. And that means to trust and obey His word at all costs. We must learn to love God even more than our own reputation and love Him more than our relationships meaning that we never waver on what we know is true, even if it costs us everything. But even though we'll likely be rejected, we must not react in kind towards those who reject us, but persevere in love and prayer and relationship if they allow us. In these instances, only the Spirit of God will be able to soften their hearts so that they're able to see how beautiful Christ is, how perfect his word is, these things that will compel them to turn away from their sinful lives 
and turn towards Him. So we need to relentlessly ask the Spirit in prayer to do this for these people who reject God's Word and reject us, so that those people may be saved and they may experience the true fullness of life that Jesus promises those who follow Him. This brings us to our second lesson for today. Jesus was innocent, but he assumed guilt without defending himself because he knew God's plan. As I explained before, despite all the accusations, Jesus was blameless in thought, word, and deed. Scripture says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. But we also saw earlier that despite his innocence, Jesus did not defend himself. Not when questioned by the high priest, nor the Roman governor. But why? It seemed like his life was on the line and it depended on it. Well, it wasn't that he lacked people to, de to defend him. Earlier in chapter 26, after rebuking Peter, who cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest with his sword, in defense of Jesus, Jesus actually rebukes him and says, do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? One commentary noted that one Roman legion at full strength was 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus was saying, do you not know that a snap of my fingers, I could have 72,000 members of an angel army be at my side and defend me? Do you think I need you and your little sword? So... If Jesus' life was on the line and he had so much available protection, why did he forego using any of his resources? It's because this. Jesus knew God's plan for his life. In chapter 26, verse 54, right after that, Jesus says, But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. What scripture was he talking about? Well, it comes from the prophet Isaiah. It says, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew God's plan, that he was sent on earth to be the sacrificial lamb, to be led to the slaughter, to take away the sin of those who believed in him. He knew his job was to fill, fulfill this prophecy, which entailed him being, the si being silent like a sheep before its shears in the face of false accusations and abuse that he went through. Jesus knew he needed to be slaughtered to save the world. So he kept quiet because he knew his, his time was about to be fulfilled and that defending himself would have only gotten in the way. In this, Jesus sets for us an example to follow, that in the midst of suffering or injustice, we can avoid pursuing revenge against those who abuse us and find peace in God's plan, which is that he will eventually bring justice to all things and all situations, even if we never get to see it. In Romans 12, it says this, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So whatever hardships or injustice you're going through right now, or whatever you've gone through in the past, whether it be having been slandered by 
uh, coworker at work, or having something stolen from you that you never got back, or facing rejection for doing only what was right, or being fired from a job for no good reason, or being physically or sexually abused without your offender facing the punishment that they deserve. Do not forget that during these times, Jesus can empathize with your suffering because he too suffered much injustice. To the point of being murdered, also remember that he is there with you in the midst of suffering and that he promises to make all things right, bring justice to all things one day. This brings us to the final lesson today. People are guilty, but God is a merciful judge who defends his people. In contrast to Jesus, people are guilty and worthy of punishment. Scripture says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Unlike Jesus, the unblemished sacrificial lamb who never wandered from the will and law of God, all humans are foolish sheep that typically think their way is better. And they find their foolishness becomes sin and leads them to ruin their lives. So we are all guilty of sin and for breaking God's law. And for this, there's a price to pay. The Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. The punishment is so severe for sin because it's against the God of the universe, the highest and most holy authority that exists. So because we've all sinned and all deserve death. God, who is the ultimate judge of the universe, has placed a death sentence on us all. That when we die, our sin disqualifies us from heaven because that's where God is. Because God is a holy God, he cannot be in the presence of anything that is unholy, which is us and our sin. Thus, the alternative for, for sinful human beings is an eternity away from him in the kingdom of Satan and hell, where there will be eternal conscious punishment. But thank God that that's not the end of the story. The good news of the gospel is that the God of the universe is a merciful judge who provides a way for his people to be cleared of all of their guilt and freed from this future of agony. For it's true that everyone, both Christians and non-Christians, after they die, they will have to stand before Christ, who the Father has appointed as judge of the universe. In the book of Acts it says, Because he, the Father, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, speaking of the God-man Jesus, whom he has appointed. Furthermore, Scripture says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every knee shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. For those who would not trust in Jesus as Lord on earth, all they can do is try to make the case that, well, I, I did a lot of good, Lord, and I know I did some bad, but now I did a lot of good stuff. Well, Scripture tells us that those, it doesn't work that way. But the prophet Isaiah says that our good works like filthy rags before God, having no ability to vindicate us from our sin. 
But rather, Scripture says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So for those of you who believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this will happen to you when you stand before Christ the Judge, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Son will look to the Father and say, Father, this one trusted in me, so he trusted in you. Thus, no charges remain against him, for I took care of them on the cross. And then he turns to you, he rises from his judgment seat, and he comes over to you, and his arms are wide, and he comes and he gives you the biggest, most warm, best hug you've ever gotten, better than anyone your mom and your grandma's ever given you. And he steps back, looks you in the eye, puts his hand on your shoulder, says, Well done, good, faithful servant. Come in, be with us forever. So if you trust in Christ, you have no need to fear standing for God. For he is your merciful and sacrificial judge who took away your sin and guilt when he died for you on the cross. For unlike Pilate who was a coward, and unlike the prejudiced jury of Macomb, Alabama, God is an impartial judge who always does what is right and will defend you on behalf of your faith. And although Atticus Finch was an upright and courageous man, the evidence you need before God is something that he can't even provide. So God hired for you the true and greater Atticus Finch, which is his son, Jesus, who, although he knew you were guilty, he came to your defense by placing your guilt on himself and taking the punishment that you deserve by dying on the cross. He, in a far greater way than Tom Robinson, suffered injustice and was charged with a crime that he did not commit. And unlike the chief priest, and Bob and Mael and Ewell, who were motivated by evil, Christ's motivation to defend and vindicate you is pure. He loves you. For why else would someone who is innocent die on behalf of the guilty? Through faith you are as children. And like parents who love their children more than anything in the world, so is God's love for you. If you do not put your faith in Christ, the merciful judge, I urge you to do it today. All you have to do are these three things. Confess to God in prayer that you are a sinner. You cannot save yourself by your good works. Second, believe that Christ is your Lord and Savior. He is the only one who can take away your sin through faith. And three, repent by committing to turning from your sin and turning towards Jesus according to what he says is good in his word. Accept the love of God today and find peace, love, acceptance, and security in the merciful judge of the universe. And lastly, remember to speak the hard truth in gentleness and respect. To do that is to be like Christ, 
and that your faithfulness to do so gives him a lot of glory, and it is for your good and the good of others, even if you're rejected for him and you're persecuted for him. And know that when you are rejected and suffer, Jesus empathizes with you because he has faced rejection and suffering himself. Find hope and peace that through faith he is always with you. And one day he will make all things right and just Father, we thank you that that is true of who you are, um, that we are guilty. We are guilty. We know even, the, even if we think, oh yeah, I did, I did a lot of good, we know our own thoughts, we know our own desires and how wrong they are, how selfish they are, how sinful they are, how broken they are. We are guilty that we can't be the one who vindicates us from that, but only you can do that and we are so thankful that you are willing to do that for you would have been just and right for leaving us to die an eternal death away from you but you are a merciful judge who loves your children and uh, I pray that um, you for those not knowing you for the nine steps of you so judge for you that day and that those who have done that that Find peace, find security, find acceptance, and the true life that you promised in that country. Pray all these things.